Hello and welcome to the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Cummings, founder of the jewellery brand Cleopatra's Bling. Cleopatra's Bling travels around the world, meeting fascinating creatives, craftsmen and women, and cultural experts to inspire our artisanal collections. This podcast invites you into those intimate conversations which bring traditions and practices from the past into the present. Patterns and designs are a big part of artisanal works, and the stories behind those designs are even more interesting. I met this week's guest while living in Istanbul, where I became fascinated with the patterns on Turkish rugs. These ancient designs have survived a millennia, still gracing markets in central Turkey and the Middle East to this day. To tell us more about the stories they carry, this week we're talking to Paul Hepworth, expert in Turkish carpets. Paul is a professor and lecturer dedicated to the preservation of Turkish carpets and rugs. His conservation work has made him an expert in the history of their patterns, which tells stories that have been passed on from generation to generation. We talk to Paul about the meaning behind certain recurring motives, how carpet-making traditions have been passed on, and how they're being preserved today. Enjoy. Hello, Paul. Hi, Olivia. So let's get straight into it. What drew you to Turkey? My father worked in international agriculture, and he brought me here as a teenager. And we had already lived for a while in Afghanistan, so I had an interest already in cultures of this part of the world, and to me at that time, exotic, which I think can be a pejorative term, but an exciting new setting and wonderful um, things being made. I've always loved handmade things. So there was a lot for me to learn and discover here. And then that led on and on. And I've just been here off and on ever since. So why rugs and textiles? And what led you down that path? My grandmother was a devoted seamstress, and she studied haute couture techniques on her own. She was from a farm in Wyoming and moved to the big city and and got interested in sewing. And when I came to Turkey, of course, the Turkish carpets are are so famous and so enchanting in terms of pulling you in and making you interested in thinking more about, I mean, all aspects of them, the colors and the weaving and the people making them and what their lives might be like. So I wouldn't say it's just rugs, but but certainly rugs were a big uh, a big thing because they're they are very embedded in the popular consciousness of what comes from this part of the world, kind of an automatic then. Can you describe a typical Turkish village rug so our listeners can imagine it? For example, a common motive that we might see or something that's quite specific to Turkey? Sure. Uh, I think what we could do is step back just a moment and categorize, uh, first of all, what a village rug is, versus um, other kinds, and also what a Turkish village rug would be. The um, Probably when, when most people think about oriental carpets, which is an odd historical term in itself, um, they're really thinking of Iranian and Turkish, and the Iranian carpets um, are very distinctive in terms of the colors and motifs and so on. Uh, and when you come to the Turkish end of things, 
uh, when we come to the Turkish end of things. Then there are village rugs and what you might want to call urban or uh, rugs made for elite type people for their homes and settings. And those tend to have a lot of similarity with Iranian carpets. So they have these very arabesque, tightly woven, uh, uh, many florals, even sometimes animals. But, But the point there is that it's very busy and uh, fussy patterns and the village rugs are much simpler they they have more open areas they're much more geometric in conception the colors tend to be strong stronger and brighter Um, and if you like that they are just delightful so what functions did rug making have for their makers both practically and creatively Uh, certainly there has always been an economic benefit to a rug-weaving family. The role of women in in the village um, might imply that their movement is somewhat restricted, that they're kept in, they're, they're more likely to be staying home and taking care of the kids and so on. And yet this would give them a way of making extra income for their family. So I think that's potentially uh, a part of it. Uh, but I, I'm pretty sure that most village rugs were, conceptually at least, intended for the people who made them, so that they are making rugs for themselves. And in that setting, where you're making rugs for yourself and your neighbors are making rugs for themselves, and by yourself, of course, it's an extended family situation. So it's not just selfish, I'm making my own rug, but you're making rugs for people who are dear to you, and they're going to use them. And uh, their practical function is absolutely paramount. If you're a nomad, and you need you need these rugs to set up your tent or your uh, location, if you're in a stable village setting, Again, you need rugs for sitting on and lying on and sleeping on and they keep you warm and they have, and that's all their practical function. But the dimension that I think uh, matters the most in terms of why they are such beautiful things is this aesthetic dimension that for women who might not be able to get out a lot and go places and do things, um, this would be an enormously creative outlet. They would learn unbelievable amounts of information from previous generations, from their older family, uh, their grandmothers or whatever, about how to spin and how to dye and what materials would be used in dyeing and how long you cook them. And, and learning is always exciting especially if you don't have other options for education. So um, that being in, deeply engaged in an activity that stimulates you must have been really great. Then you get to the place where you're actually weaving and you get to mix things up and put colors and motifs together. And your product, when it comes off the loom, is automatically going to be compared with other people next door in your family. And if you're really good at it, you're going to get a lot of attention. So you would have the 
uh, you would have the reinforcement for the activity and you would have the activity itself. Okay, so how does the use of textiles change between various regions and among people of different cultural backgrounds? What, what we're really talking about, and I think we can still see it in the world today, although um, when you look at fashion or when you look at the way people present themselves, uh, clothing and objects that we use in our daily lives are an important way of saying, this is who I am. This is the group that I come from. These are values, in this case, aesthetic values that my group has. And so they're kind of like identity markers. Um, they really do help identify who you are, not only to others, but to yourself. So that uh, looking around the world, yeah, of course, if you go today to almost any place, everybody kind of looks the same. But then once you're there for a little while, it stops being true. You know, people have a need to make differences, even if they're small, because they want to say, I'm not them, I'm us. And so uh, a lot of regional differences in rugs um, are like that. When you're first starting out as a novice and you're looking at rugs, well, they kind of look a lot alike. You see the geometric patterns and you see the colors and you see, and then you start to begin to pick up, oh, that color in that border area, that's very different from any other rug that I've seen. And, and where, why, where is that from? And you find out that that border rug, that, excuse me, that border color is an identifiable marker for a particular group. <clears throat> and, you get in further and there are particular designs, particular layouts, particular colors, particular motifs, and they establish uh, both geographical region, um, but also ethnic uh, identities. So that this part of the world has been, and still is, but has been even more so in the past, filled with different groups of people living side by side, and they look at each other of course, and they like various things about this one or that one. So if you look at Group A's rug, um, you'll find, well, it's got similar features to rugs around it from the other group, but it will almost always have something that says, no, I'm, I'm somebody else. We're similar, but we're different. So the, this Yes, well, and this mm, this need that I think is very common to people everywhere to be part of a group which is separate from part of humanity. I mean, it would be nice in some ways if we were able to see our brotherhood as a you know as a race of of, of human beings, but within that there is clearly a strong drive to you know identify with a religious group or with an ethnic group or with a, a racial group that sets you apart. I've always seen these carpets as having a kind of background role in history, but from what you're saying, it actually seems that they've played a really big part in identity. What else does the artifactual evidence show us about Turkish village carpets in terms of design and technique? 
when I first got interested in these rugs and started reading about them, and uh, we think of 500 years as being a long time, and of course it is, uh, but we have, you know, definitely survivors from 500 years ago. And then we have survivors that go back maybe a f- one or two examples, even 700 years. And then we don't have anything, nothing except for multiple references in written sources. So people in the Roman Empire had rugs. People in the Persian empires had rugs. There's a famous Persian king, the last before the conquest by Islam, uh, Hazro, and he was said to have this gigantic, massive uh, rug of many, many, many square meters, which was studded with jewels, and when the conquerors came there, they cut it up and, you know, everybody got to haul off a piece. And you think, wow, wonder what it looked like. And then we're stuck because we don't have any idea what technique you would use to stud a rug with jewels. Is it a, even, we don't even know if it's a pile rug or a flat woven. So this was the state of things. Uh, a couple of exciting and stimulating things happened. One of them... Um, there was a tomb that was excavated in the mountains of Russia and borders on, on Central Asia. And lo and behold, in the ice was a frozen rug, a pile rug. And it could be clearly dated to, you know, I think it was 1300 BC. I'd have to check the date again, but very, very early. So suddenly we now have a rug. That's physical evidence. And it wasn't just any rug. It's a very sophisticated rug. It's called the Pazirek carpet, and it's in the museum in St. Petersburg now. And because it's so sophisticatedly designed and sophisticatedly woven, it can't be like, oh, they were just learning now. No, this is clearly a very high art form already, So now we have pushed back the origins of rug making another several hundred years at least. And so that's a new thing that we suddenly have that's, we can hold it in our hands, we can look at it, we can study the colors and the the weaving and so on. And what I hope that this is giving you as an explanation is how, um, how little there is to go on in trying to come up with evidence for the development of these techniques. They've been around for a really, really long time. We know that, and and I mean really, really long time, early in the evolution of human history, but we don't really know very much about how they were figured out. When we go back to archeological context, um, rugs are wool or, or silk or cotton, and they don't survive. It's an organic material, and in general, unless the conditions are really remarkable, like being frozen permanently or in a desert, as in in Egypt, they, you know, tons and tons and tons of these things were made, and we have none of them, none. But what we do have, of course, are things that do survive, like ceramics and glass and stone, and groups of people in that archaeological context, um, develop a, a, a vocabulary of motifs that we can we can be pretty confident about 
that that they made that they had a symbolic meaning. So can you expand on that a little bit? So for example, what are some symbols and motives that continue to appear in today's designs? They're found in their temples or they're found in their burials and that's where people want to put their symbols, of course. So you could find a a motif that sort of looks like a ram's head. You know, it's got two big curly horns that come off of it. And that's really old, old, old motif. And if you're an agriculturalist, well, sheep are a pretty big part of your life. And the ram is a, you know, a very dynamic, um, strong, vigorous animal that you'd want to identify with. And then it gets associated with your religion or whatever. Those symbols at some point get translated into, you know, more two-dimensional representations like on a rug or on a flat-woven kilim. And they probably still retain, at least for a while, a direct sense of, yeah, this is a ram's head and it means, you know, good luck, vigor, uh, you know, my man is a warrior. I mean, a lot of meaning couldn't be ascribed to it. But over time, motifs tend to lose that direct meaning. So one could well imagine, for example, that when Islam came to those areas and the ram is no longer a religious thing, in Islam, but it is a sacrificial animal, you know, for the Qurban uh, holiday. Uh, you wouldn't throw out the motif. It's a very beautiful motif, but it might shift in its meaning. It still can have, you know, it's a, it's a very strong, vigorous motif. I would want to keep using it, and they do keep using it, but it doesn't have the same meaning that it had before. And time goes on and time goes on, and then you come closer, I think, to a modern era or more and more abstraction to these patterns where this motif is what we use in our, in our village. This is what we use. It identifies us, whatever that motif is. Uh, and, and that in itself is sufficient reason for keep using it. It's what we do. This is how I show I'm part of this group. But it doesn't mean it has to have that same meaning about, oh, well, that's the ram, or that's the woman with her hips on her, hands on her hips motif. Um, like what, for example? Some of the description of uh, these motifs, of course, becomes a little bit um, potentially uh, exaggerated that, that you can identify things because they kind of look like it. And it, what a nice name to call it. Oh, my hands on my hips. Uh, it's a little hard for me to necessarily say that that's what it had as the meaning to the village woman a hundred years ago. Um, whereas to the temple setting where all these women are standing up giving offerings to the goddess, it's very clear that they're women with hands on their hips and they are giving an offering to the goddess. Uh, in the Kilim, a thousand years later, no, not a, not, a, uh, not a necessarily a very clear, this is a woman with her hands on her hips. It's just a very interesting pattern and it clearly says, 
this that's this region and we it, the size of the motif the colors of the motif all of these things are markers by which i say i belong to this group a very obvious example too would be crosses i mean if you find a cross in a rug well uh, that's likely to have been made by a christian that's not a surprise clearly but these other motifs have similar function um but perhaps uh, less clear roots that can be traced. The symbolism of Turkish textiles has been interpreted in so many different ways. How has your research influenced how you think of these interpretations? My original approach to rugs was just as an enthusiast. I just thought they were beautiful and interesting, so I looked at hundreds of them and asked lots of questions and was given lots of answers. Um, so, as I say, oh, that's uh, hands on her hips, oh, that's the camel foot, oh, that's the whatever. And as I subsequently became more academic in my studies, so I actually studied art history and conservation, this question of, well, okay, it does look like a camel's foot, but how do you go about proving that it is really, that was the original origins of it? And when you start to push on some of these things, it's, it's very clear, as I described earlier, I mean, the ram's head figure, I really do think is a ram's head. No, no, no doubt about it, because we can kind of follow it through time in these different contexts. So have these symbolic traditions survived well in the modern era? Or have we sort of lost the symbolism of the carpet in the name of aesthetic values? Well, I would say in terms of modern carpet making, uh, other than saying, oh, that's a ram's head or that's a uh, hands on her hips motif, they don't have any meaning particularly. We don't invest, wow, if I have a ram's head, my rug will bring good luck to my house. We just don't really do that anymore. So they have essentially lost all of their totemic significance um, to, to modern people. And I think that surely is a reason why rug making doesn't have the same um, status and position that it once did. There are pieces of the puzzle that we've talked or alluded to today in, in our talk, and I think until they come back, it's not going to quite work the way it did. So at the very beginning, we were talking about how the young woman of the last century would have gotten a lot of personal satisfaction from this activity, as well as recognition, as well as potentially money, making useful things for her family, etc. Um, it has now become, for as far as I can see in Turkey, those who still do rug making, it is a commercial venture. This is something they can do to make money. They go to a factory setting and they are given a pattern and they work that pattern. It doesn't have any necessarily any personal connection anymore with their identity to their group. I mean, she can sit down and work a pattern that comes from any place in Turkey or even not in Turkey. I mean, it can be a totally made-up design. Uh, the product that comes off 
the loom at the end, may be very attractive from a interior design point of view. So I want a rug that is large pink flowers for my front room. Well, you can have that made. But the maker isn't coming from a village that made large pink flowers. Those have to be thought up and laid out, and then she does it. And she's not invested personally, I think, the way she would have been with this activity of a hundred years ago, where this is my group, these are my people and my motifs and my colors, and and I get to add my little bit of creativity to it, but it all links together to anchor me within this social context. So that's kind of disappeared. Does that also mean that the quality of weaving is going down? As that has disappeared, I think pretty much inevitably the personal investment goes down. The quality of the weaving is also likely to go down. I mean, you look for shortcuts. Well, let's use machine spun wool. Let's use machine synthetic dyes. Because the point is to make something quickly and make money. It's not to make something that my family is going to love and use for the rest of however many generations. We don't use rugs like that. I mean, I could ask you, how many rugs do you have from your childhood that you plan on giving to your children? I wouldn't expect very many. There are certainly uh, there are cycles in terms of their commercial viability. So right now, it appears to me that the the market is quite exciting if you're developing rugs, as, as I would call them, for this interior decoration type, so that wealthy people want new designs, interesting patterns, and they those designs and patterns are brought to Turkey or China or Pakistan or wherever, and they're made up, and then they're commercially um, sold, and the people use them for a while, and then they want something else for their next version of their house, and then that rug will go off somewhere. I don't think it'll get thrown away, but it will be a used rug. It will have that kind of value attached to it. But that very much limits then these traditional patterns. People, why would I want a a copy of a traditional rug? I mean, I'm not invested in the identity of the group. Um, And the person who made it isn't even invested in the identity of the group. And the techniques used to make it are kind of shortcuts. So the whole, uh, there's a downward spiral in terms of the um, quality of the, of the production of traditional types. And it doesn't promise well for the future, unfortunately. All right. So for this last part of the interview, Paul, we're going to do a bit of a speed round of questions. We'd like you to just answer what comes to mind first. What is your favorite rug that you've studied? I have a passion for Kurdish rugs from the east of Turkey. They are just wonderful. And what is your favorite part of studying Turkish carpets? The the way that they reflect this complicated uh, person who made them as an individual and as a group, 
and and the way that all comes together in this one object and later on you can look at it and see it and feel it that's very exciting yes i agree and if you could describe turkish rugs using just three words what would they be colorful creative historical thank you so much for joining us today paul you're welcome For more information on Paul, check out hepworthshepper.com. And check out our related First Love collection with items inspired by the ancient Ottoman Empire at cleopatrasbling.com. This podcast was produced by Studio Centa with original music by Cameron Alva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and send us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, stay curious. <laughs>